Hello, hello. Welcome back, imposters, to another episode of the You're Not Qualified podcast. We are solidly in season two, trucking along, killing it, talking to incredible people. And speaking of incredible people, this is going to be the second episode in the nonprofit series that we are highlighting. So, highlighting nonprofit women founders of conservation esque, conservation leaning organizations. Today, we talk to Kayla Fratt, a nonprofit founder of a organization that trains dogs to be conservation detective experts. We get all into that in the episode. It's very cool. These dogs are incredible. She has two border collies, spoiler alert, which is awesome. So we talk about her dogs. We talk a lot about how she developed her business after a pivot from being fired from another position and the feelings of not feeling good enough, not feeling nowhere near having the years under her belt that she needed to go out and start her own business, but she did it and she is doing amazing work and has a lot of really cool accomplishments already, which we will also talk about. And Kayla is someone that I was really excited to talk to. She basically has a dream job of mine and not surprisingly a dream job of many people. Always the total surprise. To be able to contribute to the world in amazing ways and use dogs to get there, your best friends to work alongside every single day and help species thrive and species get a better chance at surviving in the ecosystems that in a lot of ways are now working against them. It's very noble work. Kayla has timely and actionable advice to share if you too are interested in starting your own nonprofit. She also has advice to share if you are interested in training dogs to be used as conservation detective dogs yourself. She has a organization program that is designed to train you, help you train your dogs, and level them up in the industry. So damn cool. I can't wait for us to get into this topic. And just a little bit of uh, housekeeping here. If you would love to be on the podcast, you would like to be somebody that I chat with and you talk about your experience in the world and with imposter syndrome, please email me. I would love to hear from you and would love, love to chat about your experience. I can be found at ynqpod at gmail.com. If you are enjoying these episodes and feel like they are helping you in your life, helping you level up, if you share them with other people because there's nuggets of information that you think would help other people in your life, please rate and subscribe and review if you're on Apple Podcasts listening to this and do share. I appreciate if you do talk about this with people. Those episodes that are on on Tuesday, the last Tuesday of every month, so this week, One was out with my friend Maria. It is shorter than this one. It's shorter than almost all of the other episodes that we have out, except for the other Tuesday mini-sodes. There's two of them. Those are great ones to share. They are shorter, 
and they get to the gist of what we talk about. We get into my guest's experience, and then we also talk about a listener experience via email or DM that they send in and dissect that, get into what makes them tick, how they've navigated setbacks and their perceived failures in their life and come out on the other side. So very inspirational stuff. I hope that you share it. I hope that you let me know what you think. And thank you so much for being here. Without further ado, let's get into it because this is a longer episode, but I just, I had so much fun talking to Kayla. I could not stop. I could have gone on for hours. I can't wait. Okay, let's go. You are brilliant, Hermione. Truly. Actually, I'm highly logical, which allows me to look past extraneous detail and perceive clearly that which others overlook. Yeah. So today we are joined by Kayla Fratt. She is a nonprofit founder. She also trains conservation detective dogs and that is her business that she created non-profit female founder started on her own worked her way up did the damn thing we're very excited to have you here thank you so much for being here Kayla oh my gosh I'm so excited to be here (laughs) and are your dogs in the room Barley and Niffler yes Barley is at my feet Niffler is currently having a rampage outside with her neighbor's dogs Oh, cute. Oh, my dog wishes he could be doing that right now too, but the neighbor is <laughs> It's inside. a good time. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> I am so excited you're here. Thank you. Like I said, you're a nonprofit founder, conservation detected dog, detection dog trainer. It's a mouthful. And you have, <laughs> you do have a, an extensive conservation background, even a semester in high school that I saw on your LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. When we were talking though, you mentioned that the industry is gatekeepery and there's got to be a lot of feelings of I don't belong here if you are being mm-hmm. basically told that you're not allowed to come in. So can you break down what that experience was like in the industry itself? Yeah, and I think this is a good place to start. So broadly speaking, conservation is an incredibly competitive field, which sucks because it's also incredibly like systematically underpaid. And I think these two things come together in that because so many of these organizations are trying to do so much work and don't have enough funds, they don't pay. So then it's really common for people who are really excited about this field to end up in this position where you have to take unpaid internships to break in or get really poorly paid, which obviously then leads to all sorts of problems with equity. And then also can lead to, if you're not able to take those and you have to work a real paying job while you're in college, then you come out at a little bit of a disadvantage. And I think that basically comes down to the fact that this is a field, like a lot of fields, where we do this because we're passionate about it. We do it because we care about the environment, we care about the animals, whatever it is that drives us. So there's just a lot of people willing to work very hard for not very very much money, which makes it get really competitive. And I think competitive and gatekeep can go in hand because if there are so many people trying to break down your door, to some degree, I understand you do have to be selective and you can only take so many people, but that also then feeds into itself. And then within the conservation world, the detection dog world, in some ways, in my experience, has been worse. And I think where that comes from is in some ways, a really well-founded fear of, because this is such a cool sounding job, 
there are a lot of people who basically hear about this job and immediately are like, oh my God, that's what I want to do with my life without really fully understanding the complexity or the difficulty or the challenges surrounding this role and or when they're pretty dramatically underprepared. And so that's a problem for the personnel. And then the problem potentially can be if you are someone who is excited enough and figures out how to make your own way, but you don't actually know what you're doing. This is a really young field with a lot of risks. So if you were able to say, train your dog to the point where you were able to convince someone to hire you, but your dog wasn't actually fully ready for this field work and you weren't fully ready for this field work, you might do a bad job or potentially even cause harm where say you're hired to work with an endangered species and your dog chases or harms that endangered species in some way. That can really backfire and reflect on the whole field. And there have been a couple specific cases of that happening in this industry where, and because it's such a new, young, small field, people are very protective of it. And I think, again, they're like these things that like, they come from a place that's understandable, but it spills out into something that's gatekeepy. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And the protection, especially in terms Mm -hmm. of your experience, yes, getting into it though, you had experience with conservation dogs, right? No. So when I, I was that person. So I, if we want to go back a little bit, I grew up on a farm. I grew up around animals. I was doing 4-H. I was doing all the training stuff. Also, my dad is a conservation biologist. So I grew up with these two loves and not even having an understanding that they could potentially be joined. So I went to college. I was majoring in ecology. I heard about conservation detection dogs. A friend sent me like a YouTube video about them. And I was like, oh my God, that's what I want to do with my life. At that point, I'd been already trained. So you were that person for a while. (laughs) Yeah. I was a hundred percent that person. (laughs) Yes. And so then I did again, what this, what is very typical. So I did a bunch of Googling and I sent a bunch of cold emails and a bunch of them didn't respond. A bunch of them are like, sorry, we're not hiring or we're not taking volunteers right now. Um, And then I got a couple really negative responses. So one organization responded to me saying, we actually don't hire dog trainers for this because we want to be able to teach you from the ground up. And I was like, shoot, like Mm -hmm. I'm 20 at this point. And now you're already telling me I have too much experience or the wrong experience. And now I'm not a fit for you. Like I can't, if you tell me I don't have enough experience, that's something I can fix. But if you tell me I have too much of something, I can't. I suppose I could lie on my resume or something, but lie on my resume in a way that most people wouldn't ever have to do. And then I had another organization respond to me and basically say, we don't hire people who are in relationships because it always turns into it's us or the relationship because this field requires so much really intense travel. I don't know if that's legal, but okay. I don't think it is. (laughs) No, I do not think it is. And that that organization actually no longer exists for somewhat related issues to my understanding. (laughs) That makes sense. Uh, Yeah, that was really frustrating. And basically from there, at this point, I was a junior in college. It was 2014 or 2015, somewhere in there. And I spent the next kind of four years basically picking up all of these different jobs that like, I was trying to figure out how to corner the field where I was like, okay, I can't get a job being a conservation dog trainer because everyone just said no to me. So I'm going to try to get as many things on my resume that are related to this as possible so that I have a ton of the conservation experience. I have a ton of the ecology experience. I have a ton of the dog training experience. I have a ton of the communications and writing and outreach. And I learned how to build websites. I like all of these things where I was like, okay, fine. If you're going to make this difficult, I will figure out ways to outshine other people. And eventually that did work out for me. I did get a little bit lucky basically with it. It worked really hard. 
That's I did. a lot but of extracurriculars. I, I to, yes. But I think also now that I'm on the other side, I see so many people who are similarly well-qualified mm-hmm. don't get the break mm-hmm. that I got that I do think it's important to acknowledge. Yes, I worked very hard and yes, I can own that. But also there are a lot of people who work really hard and are very well-qualified and who don't ever have a door open for them in this field. That is rough. And that it is, there can't be a whole lot of positions to fill. And I say that from the perspective of there's probably a lot of conservation need for these dogs. The organizations that actually have the structure in place to support the employment of such a person is probably not very many people. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of people who are interested in hiring for this, who are interested in using dogs, but they don't necessarily have a budget that makes it sustainable Mm -hmm. to either have someone full-time on staff or to bring in like an outside consultant. The story that you had about getting fired from your first dream job is it's, it's poignant. It's very relevant to this podcast is relevant to your story. I'd love Mm -hmm. to know more about that, especially because specifically you were scouted and recruited for this position. Let's dive into that. Yeah. As I said, basically I spent four years doing everything I could to figure out how to get myself into the conservation dog field. And the last kind of genius galaxy brain chess move that I made as I was moving on, (laughs) moving towards this was I was like, okay, I'm going to apply for a Fulbright grant, which is a super prestigious fancy pants grant that lets you go study in another country for about a year, you basically can design a research project and then the Fulbright program, and this is a US-based program that lets you go to other countries, will fund it. So I was like, okay, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna put together a Fulbright proposal to study conservation dogs. So I will, if I can get this grant, then I will finish this grant having had a year of experience studying and working with conservation dogs. and. As I was working on the grant, so the grant that I was proposing was working on basically looking at the selection of conservation dogs and then seeing where dogs failed out of programs later on and then trying to find that gap. So like, why would you think that a dog is going to succeed in this role and then have it not succeed? And what can we do to update the selection measures based on that information? That was the idea. So as part of researching and writing that grant, I connected with a couple different conservation detection dog organizations. And instead of coming to them asking for a job, I was like, hey, I'm writing this fancy pants grant to try to solve a problem that you all are dealing with. Would you be willing to hop on the phone with me and tell me the struggles that you're having? And they were. They were, they were willing to say yes to that. And then eventually I ended up being a semifinalist for the grant. And at that point, then working dogs for conservation. And I had been going back and forth a little bit about the grant. They'd been helping me out with a little bit, with it a little bit. And they asked me if I would be willing to pull myself out of the grant consideration process and take a job with them. Mm. And I said, absolutely. The entire reason wow. I was writing this grant and trying to do this was to get this job. Okay. And it actually ended up working out because I ended up being a semifinalist and not getting selected. It was really great. So then I worked for Working Dogs for Conservation for about a year and a half and I loved it. I was hired as their communications and outreach coordinator. So that also goes back to the fact I actually wasn't hired to train conservation dogs. I was hired to be their kind of media person, which is funny because, you know, I spent so much time working so hard on the conservation dog Uh training side of my resume. And I did end up getting to do a lot of field work with my dog, partially because I did have that experience and partially because they're a nonprofit. They're always running around. Everybody wears a lot of hats. Yeah. Everyone's wearing a lot of hats. Everything's going by on the skin of their teeth. And I got really lucky, like two 
months into my employment there, a handler had to pull out of a project last minute and they were like, Kayla, you're filling in. <laughs> um, you're like, this is my moment. This is like a movie. This is unfolding totally. like a movie. Yeah, it totally was. It, 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 it is. And then it's all going <laughs> to fall apart. Oh, and no. then, yeah. And I, they were definitely, as with any job, it's a job. That's why you get paid. It wasn't perfect. Like, I loved the job. It was a dream job. My plan was to stay with this organization until I had enough experience that I could move up or potentially the other plan was, okay, or maybe I'm going to take a leave of absence, go to grad school, go get my PhD, whatever it is, and then come back. I didn't think they were the sort of organization that would pay my salary while I was in grad school, but I was like, maybe I get that lucky. Mm -hmm. It was my long-term plan. I was like looking at buying houses. I was really settling in. About a year into my employment, I convinced them to rewrite my job description to move much more into the role of what they call a canine field specialist. So at that point I was doing much more of the training and much more of the field work with the dogs and a little bit less of kind of the media stuff. And around that time, they had also hired a new kind of outreach person. So she was going to be taking over some of my roles and I was able to make this lateral shift. But as part of the negotiations for that, they restarted a six month probationary period, which was like the sort of fine print that I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. I didn't really think about it. And then, yeah, at just shy of a year and a half of my employment there, I got a call from my boss or a text being like, hey, can you hop on Zoom in five minutes? And it was like 8 a.m. And I was like, yeah, sure. Heart and I hopped sinks. on Zoom and I was fired. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. And it was just, and they, when this is where it really ties into imposter syndrome, they were like, we're firing you within your six month probationary period. Again, even though I'd been there about a year and a half. So we don't have to tell you why we're letting you go. And they were like, we think you're brilliant. We think you're great. You're not the right fit. We're letting you go. This is final. No further discussion. And like my first thought at this point was, oh my gosh, I have these like meetings and interviews later today. I need to email everyone and let them know I'm not going to be able to make it. And I go and try to log into my email and they'd already changed my password. And that was when it really sunk in. And like to this day, so that was about two years ago now, not knowing has really been the worst part. Mm -hmm. I can't say for sure it would be better to know why I was fired, but it definitely leads to a lot of rumination and a lot of self-doubt of this is one of the most prestigious, best recognized organizations in the field. Why did they want to get rid of me so badly. And also this is during the height of the Delta wave, height of the recession, the job market. This was before the great resignation and before Mm -hmm. the job market got really hot. So this is pretty recent. This was then like a couple of years ago. Yeah. This was November of 2020. No, November of 2020. So we were like six months into the pandemic. Yeah, It was right before Thanksgiving. It was like that year where everyone was like not traveling home because like we didn't have vaccines yet or anything. Yeah, we didn't know um, enough about it to know what mm-hmm. how it was transmitted fully and yep. Yeah, exactly. And that also stuck in my head where I was like, wow, they must really hate me if they want to get rid of me when they know how bad the job market is right now. And I don't think that's necessarily how they were thinking about it, but those were the things that went through my head. Was I, was I like, mean, wow, they must really hate me. <laughs> they gave you no information to think about it any other way, right? And yeah. Is the grass greener on the side of understanding and knowing why you got terminated? Maybe you could maybe use it to grow and work on something, but yeah, but also there could have honestly not been a reason and they didn't want to say that either. It could have just been fit. I could have just annoyed someone who was above me or money. Or something. Well, they did. So they've hired three people since they fired me. Yeah, two of so them were basically the 
it wasn't money. No, it wasn't. It wasn't just downsizing. That was like the first thing everyone would say to me when they found out is they were like, uh, oh, it's probably like COVID downsizing. And I was like, no, they post, they split my job in half and hired two people to replace me. I don't think also, it's that. That also should feel, I know it's, it absolutely, it's shit that they did that to you. But knowing yeah. that two people had to be hired to take over your role, <laughs> that should feel a little good at least. Cause yeah, probably yeah, the, this, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I can imagine they were probably, there probably were things within that role where I was a little bit hamstrung by trying to wear too many hats. And I could see mm-hmm. how hypothetically there were things I was underperforming on partially because I was wearing too many hats. But again, I didn't get that feedback. So it really got in my head because I just don't know. And I just have to live with that. And you just have to live with that. When that happened, yeah. how did you self-soothe what did you do to pick up the pieces and go on and then this can absolutely lead into canine conservation mm-hmm. is your organization yeah. and how that started but yeah, what was that process like yeah so I decided like the first couple days of grief were really okay what's the next thing it's I like have grieving do? a relationship yeah it really it felt like a breakup it was like okay so I guess I have to sign up for the ACA I guess I have to sign up for unemployment like the first day it was like mostly me being on the computer being like all right how do I sign up for unemployment what does this look like I've never had to do this before my coping mechanisms generally are running hiking those sorts of things so I definitely leaned into that and I actually before this had I had to put a deposit down and decided I was buying a puppy so Niffler my puppy came home about three weeks after I was fired, like pretty close after that. So I had maybe three months of being fully unemployed where I was really focusing on raising Niffler, which was actually nice. Yeah, it was. I need that kind of attention. Goodness. Yeah. He was a holy terror. And I got him specifically to be in this field with me because one of the things when your dog is your job is I was looking at, so Barley, my older dog, he's my best friend. At that point he was seven. And I was like, all right, he's not getting younger. He doesn't have to retire anytime soon, but I don't want to end up in a situation where he's 12 and I need to start thinking about retiring him and I don't have a backup, nor do I want to get into a situation. And this is more relevant now because I'm not within a larger organization, but I don't want to be in a situation where if I only have one dog and then that dog like even tears a toenail and can't go survey for a couple of weeks, Mm -hmm. I'm out of employment. So having two dogs is important for job security for me. So anyway, yeah, I hope the dog. I also decided there was a, the GRFP, which is for, or not the GRFP, the GRE. So the big exam for grad school was in mid-December. So I was like, I guess my next step is I'm going back to grad school. I guess now the thing is I'm going to go to grad school. So also the first couple of weeks after getting fired, were just really heavily going into studying because I hadn't been planning. I was Grad school is on the horizon, but I was thinking more like 2023, 2024, like when I'd had a couple more years at Working Dogs for Conservation first. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And then around March of 2021 was when I really started thinking, okay, there aren't very many job postings in this field. I don't really know how I'm going to get back into this because again, there are really, there's only a handful of organizations that do this sort of work. And there's even fewer that have enough people on the team that they could be hiring. Like a lot of them are one woman shows or one man shows where they don't necessarily even have a second person that I could replace. So it's okay. I guess I'm going to start my own thing. Wow. And 
I didn't feel like I had enough experience. I still don't feel like I've got enough experience to do that. And in some ways I do. And in some ways I don't, but that's everybody. Kayla. (laughs) Yeah. It was like, it was, it really felt like it was my only option if I wanted to stay in the field. Mm -hmm. I, that's, it's, I feel for you a lot (laughs) for all of the layoff stuff, but you pivoted, you turned it around in a four month period three, four month period. That's very quick on your feet thinking applause. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) I, well, and I think one of the things that helps, and I think it's always important, like it's always really important to me to give as much context as possible for these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Don't want people to think that anything around this is just that I'm exceptional or different or whatever. I had started my own dog training business a while before that. So I'd already done the entrepreneur thing. My longest term boyfriend at that point had also been a serial entrepreneur startup guy. So starting my own nonprofit when I had spent like four years running, I'd been running my own business at that point for uh, eight years. Um, And I had spent four years really steeped in like the startup world that kind of gave me the sort of context and confidence to Mm -hmm. know how to start it and know where to start. Because I think if you, if I hadn't had any of that entrepreneurial experience or even startup experience, a lot of that really does transfer over to the nonprofit. So it's not like this came out of nowhere for me. Oh, that's really interesting that, and I hadn't ever thought of that, that it does transfer over like the startup for-profit world would transfer over to the nonprofit mm-hmm. startup world. Mm-hmm. And that is really good advice and information for a lot of the, think, the, the listeners, especially because mm-hmm. I have a big following that's in the startup world. So yeah. those that want to pivot outside of it, there's probably a lot more room than they think to yeah. transition their if skills. You, if you think about it, getting donors and getting investors, very similar thing. Uh, Being a startup that's run out of your parents' garage where you have no money and you haven't gotten seed money or anything yet, very similar to a nonprofit. There's a lot of crossover and both do have to operate on these like lean budgets. And honestly, I think there's a lot that, I'm sure there's stuff that startups can learn from nonprofits, but I think there's a lot, potentially more than nonprofits can learn from startups. Yeah, I would agree with both of those. Yeah. What let's get more into the focus of your organization then. Yeah. So you are focused on saving species. Your mm-hmm. conservation dogs are an incredible asset to that. They can find bat parts, beehives, scat that, you know, mm-hmm. is not maybe even visible to the human eye, but definitely not as mm-hmm. accessible. What species are you invested in saving? Let's get into like how it all works, like your whole organization and yeah, like everything behind it. Yeah. So we can rewind a little bit because we actually haven't really told people what conservation detection dogs are. And like to some degree, it's those three words, detection dog that works within the conservation field. So think bomb dog, drug dog, search and rescue dog. They're finding something, they're trained to find it specific, but instead of bombs or drugs or missing people, the dogs are trained to find something that is of conservation relevance. And so within that, there's a lot of variety. Generally, like the kind of 
two or three biggest categories are scat, so wild animal plants, like invasive or endangered plants, and then carcasses. So like I'm currently stationed on a wind farm and my dogs are finding bat and bird carcasses. That can expand out. So there are all sorts of really cool projects with dogs finding toxins in the environment, with dogs finding diseases, with dogs finding prions, zebra mussels. Like there's all sorts of stuff that can expand out from that. And as long as it broadly fits within that realm of conservation, we count. It's not like there's a conservation dog police being like, ah, you're working on an agricultural pest. It doesn't count. Like, because <laughs> you can usually make an argument. So we're actually not focused on a specific species. I am really devoted to the method and building capacity for other organizations. And like personally, and where I see canine conservationists going in the future is we're really focused on hey, you're an organization focused on cheetahs. You're an organization focused on snow leopards. You're an organization focused on this specific land yeah, ecosystem. Let's help you figure out if dogs are a good fit, how dogs can be best used. And if you want to have your own dog team, great, lovely. Let's help you get that set up. Let's run pilot studies. Let's mentor you. What do we have to do to get this off the ground for you and have you be the leaders of it? Because currently one of the things that conservation dogs, the way that we generally run is say you're a scientist, you want to study grizzly bears and you say, great, I'm going to hire a conservation dog organization. I'm going to pay them like a per day fee. I might have some extra fees if like we might charge extra to like make sure that we train the dogs or ahead of time or there's all sorts of other line items that may be involved. But basically you're the PI, you're the primary investigator. You've designed the study. We're just kind of showing up for like anywhere between one week and a couple months to just go be hired guns, find everything you need to find. And then we wash our hands. So it is project-based. Okay. Very project-based. And that's what I'm currently doing. I'm here on a wind farm. I'm subcontracting for an environmental consulting agency. And they actually have the contract with the wind farm. And then we kind of work within that. And I very much so am just someone that show up with my dogs. We find the birds, we find the bats. I fill out the data sheets and then I leave. And that's just fine, but not like my long-term mission. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit more unstable, but it sounds like you get quite a bit of work at least. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely stay busy, which is lovely. Earlier this year, we got to, we spent, I spent seven weeks in Kenya and I did. So I should mention about a year into the organization, I brought in two co-founders. So now there's a, we, there's three young women who are all running. Yes. So there's three of us now. Yeah. Rachel Hamry and Heather Newbar are also in the organization. Their dogs, Ellie and Suki are also heavily involved. And we split up the Kenya project and we're also all on wind farms right now and have a couple other projects in the hopper for next year. That is incredible. Yeah. So your dogs, the four of them, are they trained to seek the parts of the project that you need? So right now they are trained to seek bat smell. And then if you're going to something else, they might be trained to seek bear scat. So do you have to train them for these? Is it as simple as smell this, find it? Not quite, but not far off. So yeah, basically what we do, we call it a target scent and we'll layer in a number of target scents based on the project. So right now my younger dog, Niffler, he knows how to find birds and bats. Um, Technically that counts as a bunch of different species. Hypothetically, he Oh, yeah. I think it's five or six different species of bats and then innumerable number of birds. He's never been trained on a specific species of bird, but just dead bird smell. And then the goal is they find bats and birds, but they ignore mice, voles, shrews, snakes, turtles, whatever else could be out dead in the environment, Mm -hmm. certainly the live ones. Mm -hmm. 
Farley, because he was with me while I was at Working Dogs for Conservation, has a number of other target scents that he knows. So he also knows how to find zebra mussels, dyer's wood, which is an invasive plant, black-footed ferrets, which are the most endangered land mammal in North America. And he was working on shark fin, right, as we were about to, as we were leaving. So he like half knows shark fin. And that's for like a poaching project that oh, we was, like, on boats. ended up getting to go do. In such, yeah. Uh, I think it was actually going to be in shipping container where they're basically trying to like intercept it and route. Wow. Um, and yeah, so as we layer in more scents, as far as we can tell as a field, you can layer in as many scents as you want. And then it just gets to be a question of, so for example, both my dogs know how to find dead bats. If next summer we were out on a project and we're supposed to find, I don't know, name a species. What's your favorite animal? Whales. Whales. Humpback whale. Okay. Humpback whales. Okay. So now we're going to go out, we're going to be on boats and we're going to find humpback whale scat. Maybe not the best example because <laughs> we're <laughs> likely to run into dead bats there, but say we've got a bat colony that's on the boat and one of them died. And now we've got a dead bat on deck. Uh-huh. Okay. The dog absolutely will find and tell us about that dead bat as well. But the nice thing is for this example, this is a perfect example. We can say, great. I see that that is a dead bat. Congratulations, Barley. Have your ball. Very good boy. Now let's go back to finding the whales. Okay. Where this can get tricky is if you have two species that the dog knows that are really difficult to tell apart visually. So one of the things we would want to avoid and let pull me out of the weeds if I'm going too far. No, this um, is good. <laughs> hypothetically, if you've got a dog trained to find red fox and then a project comes up that wants us to find a bobcat and by those two species, I actually, again, they're poop. In theory, it is possible to tell those species apart visually. If you look at the fresh scats, they look different. But they're about the same size. They've got similar prey. And if it rains a bunch or that scat's been out in the sun for a week or whatever, it can be really hard to tell them apart. And then if you've got a project for whatever reason, they only want to find bobcat and they don't want to find red fox. Now we're in a situation where the dog is finding both. The handler can't tell the difference. And we may run up their genetics lab fees because the dogs are finding everything. So ideally, this is where the handler being a biologist is helpful. In that situation, we would do whatever we can to make sure that we're only paying genetics lab fees on the scats that we're pretty sure are bobcat. But again, if you've got stuff that's old, that's really hard. So generally, we do try to avoid training the dogs on two species that are really hard to tell apart if we don't want to find both, particularly if one of the species is way more common than the other. So if one of the species was really rare, if it was the other way around, if you were on a red fox project, it wouldn't be problematic to pick up bobcat because there's just going to be so few. But because there's so many more red fox than bobcat, it would be problematic if you're, uh, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, I get it, I get it, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, very, very cool, the dogs can pretty much distinctly but then of course there are margins of error because they are biological creatures that are alive and mm -hmm. performing a duty <laughs> and there's totally. going to be margins and of some error. of them. Yeah. And some of the things that we see again, like us, some dogs are more likely to guess and other dogs are less likely. That's to actually guess. adorable, but not yeah. adorable for the money <laughs> part of it. It depends. So for example, my older dog, Barley, he is a guesser. He is oh very, God. he is much more likely to be like, Hey, what about this? Hey, what about this? And it's because partially because he is absolutely obsessed with his ball is his paycheck. Mm -hmm. And if he hasn't found anything for a while, he's likely to be like, Hey, I know we were looking for bats, but what if I found a mouse can be 
annoying in some projects, but for other projects, it's really helpful because one of the problems we deal with in this field is say, I want to find snow leopards. Mm. I'm going to fly to Nepal next year and I'm, we're going to go find snow leopard scat. I obviously do not have access to snow leopard scat. So our best bet for training the dog before we fly to Nepal is using zoo samples. We'd go to the zoo, pick up some samples and use those to train the dog. However, they're being fed snow leopard kibble <laughs> diet at the zoo. They might be on hormonal birth control. They might be on antibiotics. It's not the same as like wild, wild snow leopard scat. Mm. So having a dog who guesses in that situation actually isn't a bad thing because barley is more likely to be like, ooh, this seems related. Would you like me to find this? Versus a dog who's much more literal might struggle a little bit more with making that jump. And that's Niffler. My younger dog is much more literal. He doesn't tend to guess. And again, for some projects, that's great. For other projects, could get us into trouble if we really have suboptimal original training aids. Yeah. That's awesome. I just love that they- It's so fascinating. Yeah, and they would obviously have their different personalities. Anybody that has animals knows that. Mm -hmm. Very distinct. They are their own people in a lot of the ways. Mm -hmm. That's just so cool. In terms of like the dogs too, when you are scouting for dogs, say these other women that joined the organization, what are you looking for? Where mm -hmm. are you assessing them? And I noticed that they're also usually border collies, at least your two. Yeah, we have a border collie fetish uh, at this Funny. organization, <laughs> um, which was not intentional, actually. Rachel was determined to get a different breed and then ended up with a border collie anyway. And that ties into breed tendencies. So what mm -hmm. we're looking for with our dogs is first things first. First things first is we want like a healthy, physically sound dog. Yeah. But like kind of that aside, unfortunately, no, we're not going to take a three-legged dog or like a blind dog. There have been some successful blind dogs in this Because well, they usually generally use speaking, their nose. Yeah. Yeah. I had a blind yeah, dog you know, and it didn't really impact him that much. Yeah, but we might not take a deaf dog because that right. could be a safety issue or something right. like that. Anyway, the main thing is we're definitely not going to take a three-legged dog or a dog with like severe hip dysplasia or whatever. Yeah. We're also probably not going to take a nine-year-old dog because that's just a really short career mm -hmm. at that point. We have success. We have seen a lot of dogs in this field work until they're like 14, but still. Anyway, so first things first, healthy balance. Generally, looking, we're looking for dogs that are behaviorally sound and are going to fit into our homes. So we're not looking for a dog that has like severe aggression with other dogs or severe aggression with humans or any of the really big, difficult problems that like some shelter dogs do struggle with. And honestly, mm -hmm. some dogs from breeders as well. Then the next thing, and this is the first thing that we start with when we're asking questions, is we're looking for dogs that are like over the top obsessed with toys. And that basically comes about because we're looking for dogs that we can have something that we can put in our training pouch, we can put in our backpack. And when we are in the field, it is worth it for them to work through rain, snow, sleet, long hours. One of my dogs got a cactus in his foot earlier today. Like they're ignoring jackrabbits or ignoring squirrels and they stay focused because they want that ball because you can train any dog to do this work. You can train Every single dog on this planet can be trained to sniff out something specific in exchange for a reward. However, we are asking our dogs to do this at a really high level for a really long time. Hypothetically, pretty much everyone can learn to drive a car, but not everyone's cut out to be like a stunt driver because right. they Water don't have the nerve obsessive. strength or whatever. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, we do tend to see the same, probably five or six breeds pop up really commonly. So 
for us, we like our border collies, mm. also a lot of healers, like Australian catalogs, a lot of labs, a lot of German Shepherds, Belgian Malinois are working police dogs as well. And then next up in Europe in particular, mm. they love their Springer Spaniels and their Cocker Spaniels. And those are getting more popular here in the US now as well, because we're always a little behind Europe. And then some pointers, although pointers and spaniels both actually can be a little bit tricky for this sort of work, because if you think of what a pointer is bred for. Yeah, pointing um, out game. Yeah, yeah, so that can be perfect for them. But if you're working in a really birdie environment where you've got a lot of birds, sometimes <laughs> then you're running into the situation where it's, is my ball actually good enough to override these really strong genetic instincts that this dog has? Which is something we run into with border collies as well. My younger dog is purebred border collie and my older dog is not. And my younger dog struggles a lot more if we've got cattle around or sheep or anything like that. It is very hard for him, even though he wants that ball really badly to turn off that genetic instinct. So again, another benefit to having two dogs. If we've got a bunch of free range cattle nearby, I usually put Niffler away and I let Barley come out and work. <laughs> yeah. I just have this vision of, cause I grew up with a, an English pointer and uh -huh. he, we hunted pheasants and uh -huh. I just have this view of going out and okay, go find this scat. And then you're like doing your own thing and you come back and they've been pointing probably for an hour and you're just like, <laughs> Buddy, have you been like seriously just standing here with your paw up and your tail up? Yeah, yeah like uh -huh. for an hour. Yeah. Those yeah. Pointers. One of the gals that I'm working with here on the wind farm, she's another subcontractor, has a pointer and he's lovely. Yeah. But she does great. say if they flush a prairie chicken, it takes a while <laughs> to get him back on. Oh, on yeah. Desk. Oh yeah. And that's, you know, again, like that happens with bred every for. dog. Yeah. It's what they're bred for, but it like specifically in conservation pointers can be a little bit more tricky versus like if you want to do bomb dog stuff. Like pointers are really great for that because it's a much more controlled environment and you're less likely to run into prairie chickens. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah, Generally, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I guess you I never know. know. Yeah. Yeah. So let's dive into how you built this then the roadblocks that you mm -hmm. faced with your own personal development of the canine conservationists because there had to have been some and it's new so even more. it is new yeah there gosh there's so many different directions i could go with it one the biggest thing at first was just the imposter syndrome and just being mm -hmm. like i've only been in a role doing this work full-time for a year and a half yeah am i ready to be on my own and I wasn't, I did want to be on my own, but I didn't have a choice. So I just had to get over that. And I think it would have been entirely reasonable for me to decide that instead, what I would do is go straight to grad school or take another job in a related field and try to get more experience, wait for something to open up. I would be a much more competitive candidate now, but I decided to go for it. So that was the first thing. That was the main reason I didn't just start the organization right away. Like that, that was the thing that took me four months to get over. And then the next thing has been, uh, and these two things are related. So one has been building credibility within the field. Again, we're like, we're young, we're new, we're not well-known in a field that is young and new and not well-known. So people don't generally think to use detection dogs for their biological research. And if they do, they think of a couple big names and we're not that yet. And then that is related to the fact that this is for, I know you said that a lot of people are startup-y people in your group or in your listenership. We have a very long sales funnel. So generally when people reach out to us, it's not that they're like, hey, can you come out next week and do a survey? Mm -hmm. It's people reaching out and saying, hey, I'm writing a grant to try to get this project funded. 
if I get the grant, the research will start in two years. So you're like starting to like get on the phone and give out quotes and talk to people. And then they often disappear for a year or two at a time or potentially longer. And you don't know if it's that they got a better quote with someone else or they didn't get the grant or they're still waiting on the grant or like what yeah Uh, but definitely it's so we so far as an organization have only had one contract that we were actually fully awarded ourselves the other the wind farm work that we've been doing we've all been subcontracting and that was not a contract we were awarded we were hired as subcontractors like individually and that's really hard because it means we're all working other jobs we all have other streams of income because right now we're not making money doing this most of the year because even though we have work a lot of it is short term a lot of it is temporary we're at this point where we're taking we're really lowballing offers so that we can get our name out there and to get practice and try to beat out the competition and then with the goal of we will raise our prices in a couple of years but we just need to start getting contracts and that is really tough it's been tough to get the first couple and again there might be people who want to use us but don't have the funds or they don't get the grant they applied for or whatever. And then we're just left hanging, waiting for someone to come around and actually be able to write us a check. Yeah. In the episode about a whale scout group that I did before for a nonprofit as well, a woman founder, I got on a soapbox about the frustration behind the funds that go into nonprofit work Mm -hmm. and how that fund will basically that's what you have to live on and it's Mm -hmm. barely a living wage a lot of the time Mm -hmm. and it grinds my gears so much because this work is so important and there's fields that get paid way too much money and there's just not enough money funneled into you guys obviously those are very two different income streams it's very frustrating because it is imagine the things you could do with more income on the business level and personal level. Yeah. Imagine what I could do if I could do this full time and I wasn't juggling multiple other jobs. This takes up a ton of my time and I'm probably working like 80 or 90 hours a week a lot of the time right now because I'm running multiple other jobs to make ends meet so that I can get this project hopefully up and going and like eventually get to the point where it pays my salary and I can afford to live off of it. Yeah. Yeah. I hate it. Yeah, yeah, it's, me too. It's exhausting. Yeah, um, it has and to. And there are so many driven, skilled people that could do mm-hmm. this, but for whatever reason, you don't want to work 80 or 90 hours a week. You can't, or you have a kid, or you have a spouse, or like I'm single and don't have kids, so I can work 80 hours a week, and I'm single and don't have kids, and I don't have a lease, so I can just be like, yeah, sure, I'll go to Kenya for seven weeks to like get experience and do this but like a lot of people can't just up and take those opportunities and then again they get shut out so that brings us back to the beginning there and it's not that I've got a trust fund it's that dog training business that I mentioned I started at this point it makes me enough money that and it gives me enough flexibility that I can do all of these things but that was that's just not the reality for a lot of people so like Heather and Rachel both work other jobs in the off season and it means like they're doing jobs that they're way above because they're doing jobs that they can get hired for eight months 
and then go back to the wind farm or go back to field work yeah yeah and a lot of people end up leaving this field because eventually at some point they get a job that's permanent they don't want to leave and they don't want to go back to the massive instability of seasonal temporary contract work and of course they do but then we're constantly leaving we're constantly losing the people who actually know how to do this work and actually have the skills yeah it's a vicious cycle It's a vicious cycle that could be very helped with more money, but Mm -hmm. it just is not. And I don't know the answers to that, but it's, it's a very frustrating thing. I'd love to also talk about like the outside looking in then how people are perceiving Mm -hmm. you, because we've talked a lot about your feelings of imposter syndrome, but those Mm -hmm. looking in, I mean, being, we exist as humans, so we're being judged And curious Mm -hmm. if you've ever been told that a master's degree, a doctorate degree would really serve you if you wanted to go farther in this field. No, funnily enough, I really want a PhD and that's my next step. Good. And I've had a lot of people be like, do you need that? That's a good take. Okay. That's a really fun, that's a really fun angle. Yeah. Nice change of pace. Although it's funny because Well, not a lot. Yeah, it's interesting. There are like a couple of the greats in this field have PhDs and then a lot of other people don't. So it does, it definitely is, it depends on your goals and what you want to be able to do. And for me, I've always wanted to go back to school. I just love school. Like I just, I've, that's always been a plan for me. Yeah. Yeah. And then with my interest in, I don't just want to be the person who shows up with the dogs and find the things and then leave. That means I do want to go back and learn how to do the statistics and learn how to do the modeling and get those connections. And long-term, what I would like to see canine conservationists be is an organization that ultimately ends up getting absorbed by another organization. And then we can be the conservation dog arm for a bigger NGO, for a university, for a research station. And I think when you're trying to get into some of those fields, it is very helpful to have those letters behind your name. But so far, I haven't had anyone straight up say to me that those letters Mm -hmm. are what I need. But hello, stable paycheck. If you get acquired into something else. I do know, like one of the things that we struggle with to some degree in this field is that is a little bit of this perception of you're just like girls with dogs and you just want to be able to bring your dog on a hike with you. Oh, fuck. No, we are high level experts. Our dogs are high level experts and we are here to make your lives and make your research and make your data collection better. And here is how the dogs can do this. And we are not just girls with dogs. And you're also helping make the world a better place. So shove it, people. (laughs) Like, what are you doing? Yikes. In that vein then, so I don't think that age is a marker for greatness. I don't think it ever Mm -hmm. should be. There's great people of every age, but young woman founder, Mm -hmm. has that been something that people are, you just mentioned it. You're Mm -hmm. just young girls on a hike with your dog. Yeah. That's exhausting. It is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think like one of the biggest things that we've been doing to try to counteract that is really building a very strong board and collecting a big board for the nonprofit of people who maybe are white men. We've definitely intentionally added a couple of those to the board and then also definitely diversity. And Mm -hmm. we don't want to just add white men just because that gives us clout, but like that has also been a strategic thing for us. I think that it should be. (laughs) I think Mm -hmm. it should be like, it's, 
the way the world yeah. works right now. Yeah. If we can have my dear friend and our scientific advisor on the board, Dr. Charles Van Rees, if his maleness and whiteness helps us out, I think he is more than happy to lend that to us. So we, it's something we're aware of. And again, in the nonprofit world, a lot of the things that people are looking at are your board and who you've brought in and who else has bought into you. So it's definitely been a lot of like consciously trying to okay, who can we get that's like level one difficulty that might help us get level two buy-in and level three and thinking about that strategically and bringing in the right people and getting the right contracts and getting the right media and outreach and stuff to move us towards being able to be more and more credible. I think it's bogus that you don't think that you're qualified enough to be doing this. You're talking about, <laughs> and you can tell that you have a very strong startup background and like kind of building yeah. <laughs> something from the ground up because these strategy moves are not something that everybody starting a business thinks about. And I just, I think it's something that you should be really proud of. Thank <laughs> like you. It's, it's you're awesome. making me blush. <laughs> no, it's really awesome. And especially the other females that listen to this podcast, it's really important to yes, believe in yourself, but also understand what it is that you want to do, research it, get mentors, work strategically. And there's a lot of resources to do that. If you had like advice specifically to start to learn that kind of stuff, would you have any pieces to share? Ooh, yeah. So I think really thinking interdisciplinarily, if we can Mm -hmm. call that a word, has been my biggest strength. And I think is a through line in this conversation. As I said, my first big break with working dogs for conservation was because I knew how to build websites and I knew how to do YouTube videos Mm -hmm. and I knew how to write. It wasn't actually because of the conservation dog work, but that got me where I needed to go. And like the media strategy that I was just talking to you about as far as, okay, how do we get ourselves? We do Skype a scientist first and then maybe that, and like kind of anyone who's a scientist can sign up for that. And they're always looking for people. And how does that maybe get us onto a local news station? And then maybe NPR picks us up and then maybe the Atlantic picks us up or whatever. Those are strategies that came from a startup book that I actually hated at the time called Trust Me, I'm Lying. (laughs) It's about the media strategy of American Apparel. And the guy is definitely an ass, but really sound advice in there. And that is a book that I only picked up because again, ex-boyfriend, startup bro, was like, I think you should read this. And I never would have picked it up otherwise. And I think, yeah, really getting outside your comfort zone and honestly looking at who are the young men or the white men who are overperforming given their talents? And what can we learn as far as strategies that they are using? And what can we as women or minorities or whatever pick up from them? And yes, some of it is literally just that they're white men, but some of their strategies work. And some of those strategies are things that we can pick up on and use for ourselves as well. I love that. You're the second person I've interviewed to say, what would straight white men do? (laughs) And do that. Yes. (laughs) And I'm like, like, part of you is just so angry that it's that way, but it's so true. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And I know that is not always real for people because if I spoke up in a meeting the same way that some white men do, I would be perceived as bossy or pushy or whatever. Do it strategically, but particularly as far as the media and things that people are consuming, look at people who are doing what you want to do, even if it's an entirely different field and see what you can learn from them. So here's actually, here's a really funny anecdote that like a couple of my friends really hate when I bring this up, but I just have to say it because it's fun. For example, the Theranos lady, what's her name? Elizabeth Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, Holmes. Holmes. One of the things that I'm like absolutely fascinated by with her is like, how did this young white woman 
managed to convince all of these hotshots to join her board. And I don't want to create a fraud. That is not what I am saying. But hypothetically, what could I learn from the techniques that she used to get the buy-in from all of these people? Like freaking Kissinger or whatever was on her board. Mm-hmm. Like how, like there has got to be something that I can learn from that. Again, not creating fake blood machines, not you creating fake, like none of that, but there must be something in how she talks and how she comports herself in a board meeting. how she approaches people of how she uses connections that I can learn from and again I think she falls into a similar category to white men of someone who has reached way above their station yeah and she is like a bit of a sociopath but yeah (laughs) like again you take some you leave some exactly take the good bits and Anna Delvey too I don't know if you've watched (laughs) Inventing Anna she frauds out these people with tons of money and hers was lifestyle based. It wasn't as bad as Elizabeth's. I don't think because she was literally testing on human beings, but yeah, definitely. Yeah. Elizabeth is Lizzie as one of my favorite podcasts likes to call her Lizzie. <laughs> a, little bit, a little bit more sociopathic, but again, God, I would love to see a meeting of a, a recording of 22 year old Elizabeth Holmes starting to approach her first board members. And what did she do in that meeting room? And I won't necessarily ever know, but what are, how can I like still pick oh, up some of those lessons yeah. elsewhere? Yeah. Um, Cause like, yeah. What did she say? What did what, she like, say? What is her secret sauce? And mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's easy to pick on someone like her because she is a fraudster. So it is so obvious that there was something interpersonal and it was not just the idea. Because mm-hmm. I think sometimes we get fixated on this idea of like, you just have to have the right idea. You just have to have the right team. And to some degree, obviously she was selling a fallacy and it's really easy to have a great idea when it's not real. But there also must have been something else there. So anyway, that's a little bit of a rabbit hole. But I do think as far as that feedback. Some of the best advice ever, honestly, is to go pick out those people that are doing incredible things. And you know what? Don't even look into legality. Just look into if they're influential. And that really Mm -hmm. opens the doors up more to those. Because you look at people like Elizabeth Holmes and Anna Delvey and you're like, oh, I shouldn't be like that. Mm -hmm. You know what? They got shit done until they got caught. So if they had stopped at a certain time, they never would have gotten caught. And they still would have done a lot of influential work. And so that Trust Me, I'm Lying book that I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. that's another great example. So they're one of the key strategies that I can't remember the guy's name, but it doesn't matter. He's a white dude. I assume he's white. I hope he's white. Because I'm an ass now. One of the big things that American Apparel did a lot of was they would intentionally stir up controversy to get media attention. They were really going with the any attention is good attention sort of thing. That's not a strategy that I personally, especially as a nonprofit person, am going to go with. It works a little bit better in the startup world, but not so much in the nonprofit world. But his strategy of how he laddered media attention and ratcheted that up is genius. So you take some, you leave some. You do. But let's just take ourselves out of this rabbit hole here. Start to wrap this up because I'm taking up so much of your time. But I'm curious what your most favorite accomplishment is with canine conservationists. Can I have two? Yes, of course. Two, two okay. favorite accomplishments. So one was that Kenya gig that we had because it was our first gig. So basically we were hired by this organization called Action for Cheetahs in Kenya. They have two scat detection dogs that are trying to find cheetah scat. And they had a hundred percent turnover on their team. So they were at a situation where they had two handlers who had never trained a dog before, and they had no senior staff left on the scat dog team. They had staff left everywhere else in the organization, but no one on the scat dog team. 
So they were looking for experienced conservation dog people to come in and mentor them and teach them from the ground up. And I think we did a really good job. I was there for seven weeks. Heather was there for three or four and Rachel was there for four or five. I can't quite remember all the dates. Mm -hmm. And we built a really good relationship with them. We continue to go to their weekly meetings over Zoom and like we're hoping to be able to come back and continue helping them with all of their needs. But it's your first. It was really exciting. And I think we made a really big impact because frankly, their budget is exceedingly tiny. And they were really struggling to get the help that they needed because they could not pay the salary for anyone or pay consulting fees for anyone else with the level of experience that we had. So it was a win-win in that we got the experience we needed. We didn't get paid very much. We got paid Kenyan salaries and they covered our travel. So it was okay. It's a free trip to Kenya for seven weeks. And I get paid a Kenyan salary, which I think comes out to about 200 USD a month. So really not very much. That's but insane. It's insane. <laughs> Apparently you can live on that just fine in Nairobi. Maybe not Nairobi specifically, but elsewhere. Apparently not a, not horrible. Can't imagine. Um, Okay. Can't imagine. Yeah. The prices are very different there. Yeah. That one. And then the next one is, so we're currently running, we're about halfway through our first online conservation detection dog course. I, up until recently was saying it was the world's first, but they're actually Lindsay Ware from Science Dogs of New England, who's at this point, a good friend and colleague. She has a semester course that she taught through, I can't remember which university that was online in 2020 because of COVID. So we weren't actually the first. But we have 44 students from around the world, everything from we've got Namibian black-footed cat researchers to a Costa Rican sea turtle researcher to a bomb dog person who wants to make a career change to college kids, all in this course. And it's really, we've really set it up to be like an A to Z of all of the theory that you could ever need for conservation dog work. We're really hammering for all of our students that like after this you still definitely need in-person mentoring and you need to shadow someone with their dog and you need to have someone shadow you with your dog. And that's something we're hoping to be able to offer eventually because right now it's like really frustrating to tell someone that and then be like, also nobody really offers that. So good luck. And something we're moving towards being able to offer. But it's been really cool to see people being able to understand a lot of the complexities. And basically it's been a massive brain dump of everything I've learned over the last four years, everything I wish I knew earlier on and trying to get people from A to B and like getting these people, getting more people out there who really know what they're doing. Some of them, they may never go into this field professionally, or they may do it volunteer wise, and they may do it for a season, but they understand the intricacies and the complexities. And one of the big things that we've been really working on is, are you familiar with the Dunning-Kruger curve? No. Oh my gosh. This is my favorite psychological phenomenon. <laughs> okay. So. Say, okay, I feel like the best example for this is like an eight-year-old who really falls in love with marine biology and then gets older and older. Oh, it's So me. when you're, yeah, I see your, your killer whale thing behind <laughs> you. It's awesome. So when you're eight, you like learn about killer whales and you're like, oh my God, killer whales are the coolest thing ever. And then you read every encyclopedia page you can find about them and you like play some killer whale game and you like learn everything you can. And then you are the world's foremost expert on killer whales. And eight-year-olds are great at this because they honestly do have encyclopedic knowledge, but they are also way more confident than they actually are knowledgeable. <laughs> so that is like the first part of the Dunning-Kruger curve is like when you first start learning about something, your confidence way overshoots your actual skill level. And then what tends to happen is at some point you crest that. And for our marine biologist, eight-year-old, that might be the point where they're a freshman in college <laughs> or maybe a senior taking biology in high school or yeah. whatever it is where you're like, oh shit. 
Yeah. This is so much. It feels more like you went back in time and I watched me. Ex- yeah. Because <laughs> this is it's like, like I'm bad at math. Ex- there it goes. <laughs> it's an extraordinarily well described psychological phenomenon. Of makes me feel better. You, when you first learn about something, your confidence and enthusiasm shoots up. And then at some point you learn enough to basically fall into this like complete lack of confidence where you're like, this is so complicated. I will never understand it. So that's the point that we're trying to get our students to and then beyond. So some of our students kind of join when they're at that peak of they've read everything there is. They've listened to the podcast. They're like super fans. And they're like, I'm ready to be a conservation dog person. And what we're trying to do is help them understand that there's a lot that they don't know and then start bringing them back up. So they call this the, there's like the peak of stupidity. If you look at the curve online or the, I can't remember what it is. We'll call it the peak of stupidity here. And then there's the valley of despair. And then there's this like, point where you're like, okay, I'm starting to get it. And that's about where I am with conservation detection dogs. And then there gets to a point where you're actually at true expertise and you still at true expertise have lower confidence than that eight-year-old. Yeah. But you actually, you have a much more accurate understanding of your own. um, That's called imposter syndrome. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And yeah, like that valley in this Dunning-Kruger curve is I think where For some people, that's where imposter syndrome comes in Mm -hmm, is like mm -hmm. something shatters that reality where you thought you knew everything and like it's related, but not to imposter syndrome. So anyway, our goal with this course is to try to get people up and over that peak of stupidity and then back up through that trough. We don't want to leave people feeling like they know nothing. That's not at all what I'm saying, but we do want to kind of get them out on the other side and help them understand that there's a lot that they don't know still. That's really, I think that's an amazing accomplishment. That's such a good one to pick out because you're helping spread the Mm -hmm. whole movement and you're helping other people understand not even that they can do it, the ability of dogs and how they can contribute to conservation, but you're also helping them understand that it is so needed. Like this niche is because without all the reading, they're probably finding that just about probably every country in the world has something that needs to be, the ecosystem needs to be cared for. The species itself is like seriously endangered. It's just, that's incredible. I love that. And I'm going to link that in the show notes because anybody, so I have a miniature schnauzer. He's pretty ball obsessed. Mm -hmm. Could Mm -hmm. I like theoretically train him? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And what we've been really recommending for a lot of our students as a starting place, if you wanted to do that, is if you've got the flexibility, take one of these temporary wind farm jobs. There's a lot of them and it's seasonal and it pays relatively well, at least with the company that I'm currently with. And they generally hire a couple dozen people every summer. So it's kind of the best way to break in. The other option, if you're really interested in breaking into this field that I really recommend is getting involved with like your local, say friends of whatever national forest or like a trail maintenance crew or whatever. So like in Missoula, Montana, one of the big ones is actually our local mountain bike club is very into trail maintenance. And what I would recommend for a novice conservation dog handler, someone who's really excited and wants to start getting experience is volunteering with something like that, getting to know the invasive plants in your area. And then the nice thing is if you can train your dog on that invasive plant and you can bring your dog to some big volunteer day, and even if your dog only finds one and your dog misses 50, that dog found one that maybe someone would have missed. And if your dog finds a hundred plants that aren't the right one, okay, great. We definitely need to go back to the drawing board with training. No biggie though. And you were already going out. It was already a volunteer event. You're already in a high traffic area and you're going to have to get permission. You're going to have to build relationships, but that's really where I recommend people start out if they're really stoked about this field. 
do not, for the love of God, try to go out and for your first project, like work with the Snow Leopard Conservancy and fly yourself and your dog to another country and work in this like incredibly rugged environment or work on something like, don't work on a disease or something that's unconfirmable. That gets like way harder. Work on something. Plants mm-hmm. are great. You can look at the plant and say, great, my dog is correct. He gets his ball. And again, if your dog is wrong a lot, that gives you a lot of information about your training, but it's also not harmful in that specific situation. Yeah. And you're still building your relationship with your dog. They're getting the exercise. Mm-hmm. They're having probably a ball of a totally. time, pun intended. Oh my gosh. It is so cute. Like I, I'm, I'm going to say it and we'll hopefully my dogs don't lose their minds. But like every morning when I'm like, all right, guys, you ready to go to work? Like they're popping up, they run to the car, they Aww. hop in, they know which crate is theirs. They like hop in and they're like, the younger one like whines as soon as we get onto the gravel road. Cause he knows that gravel means we're about to get there. And like that moment where they hop out of the crate and they like, look at me and their pupils are dilated and their mouths open and their tails wagging. And then I say search and they just, they spin around on their back legs. Their front legs aren't even on the ground. And they're like running before their front oh legs are on the ground. And they're like, hell God. yeah. It's yeah. so good. They're it's working so good. dogs. They want to have a job. And I love that so uh-huh. much. It like fulfills so many things. things. It makes them so happy and they find <laughs> things. I never would have found. Yeah. They're so useful and it brings them so much joy. It's just, it's why we do it. What's next? What's next for canine conservationists? Whew, sleep. No. <laughs> so yeah, we're at the point right now, it is mid to late September and we are at September 22nd. We have a couple of weeks left in our field seasons. Then we've got about a month and a half left in our course. So then over the course of this winter, we're going to be getting our course to the point where it can be done self-study so we can just make it available and people don't have to wait for the next time we offer it live. We're working on a bunch of grants. We're working on some proposals to get out and get some more research experience for ourselves. And all three of us are hoping to go back to school. So we're at a point where we're okay with our very long sales funnel and we're okay with the fact that it's not full-time because I think for each of us, the next step is school. And then hopefully through all of this outreach and all these seeds that we're planting by the time that we are done with grad school, some of those things, those seeds will be ready to be harvested and we will be ready to go back and do this full time and not have multiple jobs. That is plan A right now. Myself personally, I'm in the midst of a couple of grants to actually return to Kenya and do some really cool research where hopefully we're going to be looking at basically all of the carnivore species and mapping how they interact with each other, how they interact with habitat type. So for example, do more lions in an area mean that you have fewer caracals? Do more hyenas mean fewer wild dogs? Do more wild dogs mean more hyenas? Who knows? Nobody knows this stuff. Nobody knows that? (laughs) No, they don't know all these, like all these really intricate relationships. No, they don't actually... For some of them, for some of these dyadic pairs, so like hyena, they actually do know that more hyenas mean fewer wild dogs and more lions generally means fewer hyenas. Yeah. There's just Uh, so um, many things in that too. So territory, prey. It's like, yeah, Uh it's, it's the dynamics are definitely different species to species. And wow. I didn't know that. That's so cool. Yeah. And then we're also going to be looking at how all of that relates to human wildlife conflict, which is generally related to depredation. And depredation is not just predation, but actually predation upon livestock. If you have more hyenas in an area, 
does that actually make the caracals more desperate and more likely to prey on someone's lambs? Or like not just looking at how they affect each other, but how they actually affect each other's behavior and how that influences the humans in the area. So it's that is hopefully the thing that's going to turn into my PhD. And it's also why I'm very stressed out right now, because all of these grants that I'm writing three different grants right now, and they're all due in less than a month because they're all due at the same time. Oh my God. And they're all due at the end of my field season. (laughs) It's so bad. I've been like, yeah, <laughs> it's bad. It's bad. It's real bad right now. Oh my um, God. <laughs> but all of the good luck to you. That's amazing. You're obviously so extremely yeah. passionate about this. And I think that that should yes. be the number one yes. requirement. Passion. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Especially if your passion leads you to actually pursue the necessary skills to succeed. <laughs> there you go. Passion, perseverance. Yeah. <laughs> so where can people so, find you oh my goodness so canineconservationists.org is the main place letter k number nine conservationists.org we have a podcast called canine conservationist find it wherever you get your podcasts and if you're interested in this as we said we've got a course and then we also have a patreon which is like a learning club so we have a book club we have monthly training calls where we all get together and watch video of each other training we have like monthly training challenges and all sorts of really good stuff for continued ongoing learning we're on instagram we're on facebook i'm on twitter half of my Twitter is about conservation dogs and half of it is me like whining about grants or whatever and some of its memes <laughs> yeah really if you just google Kayla Pratt or canine conservationists will come up oh and then last thing so the other thing is because all of these grants and everything that I'm putting out into the ether none of them start until fall 2023 at the earliest my plan as soon as I'm done with my field season is I am taking myself and my dogs and my sprinter van and we are driving to Argentina I love so we're it. driving the Pan American Highway. So if you're interested in that, follow us at Collies Without Borders on Instagram and on YouTube. And that's just like that. vlog and those sorts of things. That is not conservation dog related, strictly speaking, but it is my kind of like last hurrah where I'm like, I have a random bit of time where I don't have any work. I can work remotely and I'm about to go start a PhD and be very busy for five years. So we're just going to go have fun. Oh my God. Yeah, your life is about to get chaotic in the most beautiful way. I yeah. feel yeah. you don't even know what chaos is yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, we just, we went to the vet last week and got all the animals, like international health certificates ready to go. Because of course, I also have a cat. I found a cat in a ditch. Ah, yeah, ago, so the cat I have looks- a cat too. Oh my God. Yeah. So anyway, that's well, a whole other thing. Oh, it is. And I like, I don't know the last time that I've gone this long in an interview to be completely honest with you. And I did warn you. So at least there's that, yeah, but I consented. Yeah. And you <laughs> consented and I am just so excited. And there's a million more questions that I could ask, but I really appreciate your time. And y- yeah. you just, you basically just dumped your whole brain on this recording. And I'm really appreciative. Oh my gosh. No, I hope it helps some people. And I hope this is the way I add my podcast. I hope you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. Um, yeah. Love it. Yeah, that's that's so, <laughs> I love it so perfect. much. Perfect. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> there was no better way to sign off the episode than I hope you're feeling inspired to get outside to be a canine conservationist. Just nail on the head. I'm stoked that you listened. Kayla is obviously incredible, as you can tell, highly knowledgeable about canine conservation work, her dogs, 
very much so in love with her dogs, which I loved to see. Good luck to her on her travels while she prepares for going to a five-year PhD program. Kudos to her. That's amazing work. And I hope that she and her colleagues get the break that they so deserve. I also hope that you can take this and run with it. If there's anything that you want to get involved in, in terms of conservation work, nonprofit work, if you want to start your own nonprofit, if you want to join a nonprofit, if you want to train dogs to be conservation detectives, this is the episode for you. Share it widely with those people that you love that you might know also want to get into this work or are toying with the idea of getting into this work. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. And as Kayla said, there's definitely not a lot of companies out there that are willing to hire, but the more that this catches on, it's a very new industry, the more that it catches on, the more work there will be. And it's just such a cool way to get outside and do something awesome for the ecosystem that you live in, especially to start with and bond with your dog. Highly recommend. For today's trivia, I really wanted to go along the conservation theme And I had an inkling of what the most endangered animal in the world is. And it was at least the most trafficked animal in the world, the one that I was thinking of. So the most heavily trafficked mammal in the world is the pangolin. I'm sure that you have heard about the pangolin somewhere, maybe on TV, a commercial talking about the trafficking of them and how endangered they are. They're pretty damn near extinction right now. It's devastating. So pangolins, they're critically endangered. They are the only mammal with scales made from keratin. So it's the same material as our nails and our hair. But because that's so unique, you know, it's meant to protect them and everything, they evolved with these scales. It's why they're being hunted as well for their scales. So there's a lot of work being done to fight the obviously illegal pangolin trade. There is this website, wildlifealliance.org. So Wildlife Alliance has rescued 401 live Sunda pangolins from the illegal wildlife trade since 2001. They are doing incredible work for habitat protection, rehabilitation and research of pangolin, and stopping the trafficking overall. Highly recommend you check that out. I'll put uh, that in the show notes. You can also donate to them if you're interested. The pangolins really need a lot of help. I'm very curious, too, if wildlife conservation dogs are at all involved in pangolin trade work. I would assume that it would be very beneficial to have dogs that are trained to sniff them out, and I will have to ask Kayla about that, but very curious. It seems like a great place for wildlife detection dogs and help in the conservation efforts of these really highly trafficked, devastatingly endangered animals. All right, friends. Where you can find me is going to be linked in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have an amazing weekend and I will see you next week. Bye.